Welcome to Sex Matters first ever event. I'm waiting to see if Helen's going to join. Maybe she's not. Um, I'll carry on while we're, while we're waiting for her. Um, I'm Maya Forsatter. I'm one of the co-founders of Sex Matters, which is a new human rights organization aiming to bring clarity on sex and gender in law and policy starting in the UK. Um, and <laughs> we're really excited to have Helen here with us. And here she is. Um, and I thought it was you. I was going, oh goodness, we've lost Maya. <laughs> <laughs> we're really excited to have Helen here for our first ever supporters event. So this is um, going to be a conversation between me and Helen. I'll ask her some questions. She'll ask me some questions. Um, hopefully people in chat uh, or have conversations in chat and ask questions that you want me to direct to Helen in the Q&A section um, and I will feed them into her. Um, we're just really pleased to have Helen here this week after she's just launched her book um, and we were at, I was at her launch yesterday, her in-person launch yesterday and we were giving out the very first bits of Sex Matters merch, which is going out to supporters pretty soon, um, which is a bag. And inside the bag is a book. Um, and sort of both of these two bits of bits of kit are conversation starters. We, we want to empower and help our supporters have conversations about sex and gender and have, you know, bring the grown-ups back into the room. And this book is a secret weapon to do that. So we're really pleased to have Helen here um, to talk about it. Um, so I am going to introduce Helen. She probably doesn't need much introduction, but uh, this, so this video will go onto YouTube later without the chat and without the written questions and answers. So um, you can, chat away to your heart's content and that won't go on YouTube but the rest of it will so for the benefit of YouTube I'll introduce Helen um, she's um, she's been a staff journalist and economist since two, 2005 and she's currently the Britain editor um, previously she edited the papers economics and finance sections and the international section and she was the Brazil correspondent uh, she has a PhD in maths and she trained as a dancer it's it's like me being a tax expert you know that's how you're <laughs> now forever and ever um, and uh, Helen and I have kind of a connection that goes back before we knew each other I think we both got interested in this topic around the same time in 2017 when the debate around the uh, GRA was kicking off um, and sort of before I became famous for losing my job uh, probably the most fame that I had was being quoted in The Economist about tax where I had challenged um, some received wisdoms about tax and international development and received a kind of much smaller version of the kind of pushback you get when you talk about sex and gender. Um, but I was very excited to be um, quoted in The Economist. And then I worked in a, um, a think tank full of economists. And one day in 2018, on the so every week was the uh, this week's edition of The Economist on the front desk. And one day in 2018, there was this edition that had these essays from people talking sensibly from different viewpoints about sex and gender. And it was edited by someone called HJ. I don't know who that was, um, but I thought that was amazing. And I thought, wow, you know, now people will see that this, this is in a sense, this is being talked about in a sensible place, in a, in a grown-up place, they'll see that this is a debate that we can have. Um, how wrong was I? Um, and now, you know, I'm looking at this and going, well, this is a book, this is hard, this is, you know, we can now think we've arrived. And I, and I think we have, we've come a long way. Um, but I sort of wanted to start off with Helen um, telling us about her journey and about where you think 
we are in in the kind of journey of being able to talk about this yeah so i think my journey was probably fairly like yours in that um you know i wasn't a tax expert although i edited the finance section i actually didn't know very much about the things in it but that's the secret of being uh, an editor in journalism is that um you get experts to write for you and then you're the ignorant sod who says repeatedly sorry that's too complicated can you explain that more generally people won't understand it so that was my main role i think on the economics and finance section um I stumbled on it before I did that particular job. As you say, around the same time as you in 2017, I first got interested. I was asked just to write an article or I was asked to find someone to write an article, actually. And I asked somebody to write the article for me. Um, he's somebody I still like and respect very much, but it was a silly article. It managed to talk about uh, the question of who is a man and who is a woman without mentioning why we have sexes without mentioning biology or evolution or reproduction. Um, it really went straight to the idea that we just are who we say we are. And of course, in some respects, I agree with that. You know, I mean, there's nobody who can tell me, you know, how strongly I identify with my Irishness or if I still have any connection with my Catholic upbringing or anything like that. That's the sort of thing that only I can say about myself, but I just don't think it's relevant for things that not only have an objective basis in reality, but that also matter for other people. But I hadn't been able to articulate that at that point. I just knew that there was something wrong here. And I ended up having to throw out that article after three attempts to get him to rewrite it. And then I decided to write it myself. And that article is still on The Economist's website as a, an international section from, I think, 2017. And you know, it sort of holds up. Like it doesn't get to the bottom of it, but it, there's good stuff in it, you know? So I kept for about a year afterwards, I just kept reading on this and I found all sorts of people, you know, a lot of them anonymous. And then at some point in 2018, it must have been, um, The Economist had its, yeah, it had its 175th anniversary. And our editor had a year of um, sort of events as well as the magazine she called Open a Future, which was meant to be open society, open debate, open speech open borders, not open borders as in everyone can go everywhere, but everything about openness and outward looking. And I can still remember what just being in the office one day, sitting in the finance section, talking to people and suddenly going, there's one thing that you're not allowed to talk about. There's one thing you're not allowed to be open about. And I just wandered straight across and said, I think I should try to get some viewpoint essays for and against. And I was still naive enough then to think that I could just get people who said trans women are women, trans women aren't women and that somebody would fall into that category, you know, that they would talk like this. So I approached some interesting trans people that I had been reading from and um, asked them and then was completely astonished by the response. Like lovely people whose work was empathetic and interesting. And then they responded to me by saying, um, you know, this is like asking a Jewish person to sit on a platform with a Nazi. You know, you, you're, you're one of the people who wants to put me up against the wall and shoot me. I think you don't understand. They want to kill us all. I said, this is absolutely surreal. And it just all convinced me more and more that I was right, that here was something that we actually did have to keep pushing on. I never doubted about that bit, by the way. There was never a point where I thought I shouldn't be doing this because those are the things that should make you want to do things. Like, I don't understand why someone would go into journalism not to do this sort of thing. Like, I understand not feeling that you're able to, and I certainly understand why many women are anonymous. And I, I mean, you've probably heard these stories too. You know, like I said last night um, at the book launch, um, you know, if you put your head above the parapet on this, you hear from people who can't. Yes, all the time. Yeah, and then it's very annoying when people tell you that there isn't a problem. You know, they yeah. say, well, you've got your book published. Well, yes, I got my book published. But what about the books that didn't get published that you don't get to hear about because nobody tells people that they haven't got their book published because they're still hoping they'll get their book published. I mean, just today, somebody I thought had got a book contract, a woman who's writing in this space told me that she was dropped the day it was meant to be signed. Wow. Yeah. And of course, she's not saying anything because she's trying to find someone else. Like you don't, you don't broadcast that. It ruins yeah. your career. No, there are so many stories of you know, people that have gone some way and then found the door shut and uh, yeah. they're keeping going but the story isn't out there and you know even people that I know um you know people like Lisa McKenzie of um Murray Blackburn McKenzie what she went through when they published their article just these completely normal things that you should be able to publish books you should be able to publish articles you should be able to write blog posts get uh, this um disproportionate reaction um and it, not everyone can can withstand that for 
completely understandable reasons. And so that's... Oh, hello. Have I broken up? You have, but you're back, so carry Okay, on. I've got, I'm, I'm on, I'm so sorry, everybody. I think it must be the incredible thunderstorms we had here. I mean, I'm actually on ethernet, so I'm doing everything I can. Um, yeah, we had, we had an afternoon of thunderstorms here of Brazilian proportions here in Cambridge. Um, the, the fact that there was this pushback was the thing that always made me realize that I had to keep going on this. That was, you know, if they'd ever stopped, I might've stopped because this isn't, you know, this, this isn't my thing. This blew up my life. And I was completely, completely ready for it to get really hideous once the book came out. It was actually great having the book out for, because for once it, it, it's been printed for about six weeks. And that felt like the can before the storm in a very unpleasant way. And I also knew what the slur would be. Um, I, you know, there were some things... A memo, had, a memo had gone round. Yes, I had seen some things that were said to people who had read pre-publication um, uh, pre copies of the book. And so I knew what the slur would be. And, you know, it is one of those things that when something is so... I, I, I actually got advice from some of the people that I wrote about. I wrote about smear campaigns in the book. And I asked them what they thought. And they said, the reason that you're finding this so hard is because you just spent two years trying to put your argument forward and thinking how you can phrase it in a way that nobody can misunderstand you. And you've prepared yourself for attack on that front. And then this thing comes along that's just literally nothing to do with anything. I mean, in case anyone hasn't seen, I'm now being called an anti-Semite. And... Um, <sighs> Oh my God, it's one of those things, you know, if you say I'm not an anti-Semite, it's like saying I don't, um, you know, I don't beat my wife. Yes. Like, when's, why is anyone asking you about this? So, so that's the point. The point is to distract you. It's not just to slur you, though, it's that too. It's to distract you, to take up time that you should be presenting your message. Like, we sh I shouldn't be talking about this now. I should be talking about the subject of the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's the point. But I mean, I know that people here are seeing yeah. it. And so I knew that that was coming. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's pointless and ridiculous and has nothing to do with anything. Um, I'm going to have to possibly do something about it. And instead, you know, it's ruining this lovely time that should be amazing and more importantly, distracting me and, and, and maybe putting people off. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. I think, you know, people who've been through this cycle or who've seen others go through this cycle can see immediately that it's bad faith. But people who have been warned off this topic by the noise, um, you know, this serves as a, another warning to say well why would I try and unpick those um, accusations yes uh, and, yeah and I think it's, it's very important to understand how journalism works from this point of view so if you edit something like I edit the Britain section now and that means that I have usually five or six pages of the paper to look after and I have to decide what goes in it and there's so many considerations there's the news cycle there's the balance of what the things in it are like you know some light stuff some politics some you know, crunchy analysis. It depends what's in the other sections as well, but there are many, many choices. And most stuff you don't have to run and much stuff you don't run that you could run because, you know, honestly, there isn't the author available that week or, you know, especially when you're doing something like, I, you know, sometimes I edited the Americas section after I returned from Brazil and, you know, there might be an important election on that in a, an ordinary week you'd run it, but you would a bigger election this week, so you wouldn't run it. So you just imagine somebody in the media who's thinking, well, there's this book, it looks interesting, there's a controversy, I might talk about it, but, you know, bloody hell, she might be an anti-Semite. And, um, you know, I don't have time yes. to look into this. I just don't. And there's other books. Yes. And I, I think that thing about not having time is partly why all our institutions are so vulnerable. Yes. You know, nobody has time. Politicians don't have time to write their own speeches and to research the issues and journalists don't have time and everyone's chasing clicks and it is, you know, optimized for making people angry. And so, you know, this, this um, balance between people who have well-paid jobs and positions, but not enough time, organizations that are chasing clicks, and then people who are outside of those organizations who have plenty of time um, and the incentives on those on those three groups, I think, drives us into this um, dysfunctional relationship around all kinds of topics. And this one is um, 
it's just destruction tested, I think, enlightenment organizations and they, they have failed and they failed, I think, because their business models don't work anymore. The things that gave them enough money and enough resources to have time, not just time in the day, but also time in a career to, you know, to build up integrity and to build up knowledge and networks and all of that is undermined by the internet because everyone can be everywhere all the time and, and lots of that is really great but it sort of just created this vulnerability and then this crazy ideology that you know men can be women that nobody knows what sex anybody is came in and sort of just cor corroded holes into our into our institutions that's anyway that's the way no I completely agree and you know in journal I, I don't think it's a mistake or I don't think it's by chance that The Economist has stood up, stood up against this uh, particularly. Um, I think it's an institution with a really unusually strong culture, as anyone who was at the book launch will have seen. So it's actually a highly Jewish organisation. I don't care about people's religions, but the fact is I do have a lot of Jewish colleagues. And unlike the Jewish people at other organizations where people were smeared as being anti-Semitic or indeed just people at other media organizations like most of Suzanne Moore's colleagues, you know, they went online to say, this is nonsense. And that included people who don't much like me, who haven't read or don't like the idea of my book. And when, as you've often said, they can't fire us all, like when lots of people stand up and say it, it becomes a much less effective attack and you're not left out on your own. You know, I mean, I think you probably felt that you had people's backing and then you looked around and they'd all disappeared. Yeah. Yes. And that didn't happen to me. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, really, and I wouldn't say this except that the editor and the deputy editor said this themselves yesterday. They weren't very keen on this when I started writing on this. You know, it's The Economist. We didn't have to. This would have been an, this would have been a, an issue that was not not um, core for us. Now I persuaded them, and it took me a while that in fact this was core because I think it's a huge culture war issue. I don't think it's it's made by the culture wars. I think the people who say, you know, that um, that you know Republicans are seizing on this issue as a way to attack Democrats, I think that's really precisely wrong. I think the Democrats are giving the Republicans an open goal on this. So. I, you know, it took me a while to persuade them that, you know, we cover US politics and this issue is the issue where all of it collides, everything. You know, the, the mess the discourse has become, the, the way that polarization has turned people um, from, you know, anything thoughtful into um, just outrage machines and polarization machines who see only what their own side says. Uh, the incredible bad faith. Like, you know, when, when you are in this polarized mindset and you, you can believe that anything you say about, say, Steve Bannon or Donald Trump or apparently Helen Joyce is completely acceptable because those are bad people, BP, capital bad people. Whereas you can ignore terrible things that are being done on your own side. I mean, I don't know if anyone has seen Jesse Singles, a very interesting article about the attacks on Abigail Schreier by this um, organization called Sex Based Medicine. Or sex-based medicine. God, I have the sex on my brain. Science-based medicine. Science, everyone. Science. Sorry, I just have to say sex every sentence. It's essential. Um, anyway, so this science-based medicine is a very serious organisation that debunks rubbish science and that promotes proper thinking about science, like evidence, what's uh, rational, what's logical, what's plausible. And they've just run these absolutely awful articles to tr after taking down a review, a quite good review of Abigail Schreier's book, and it's, it's, the, it's the way that, you know, if something is feeding into your own narrative, you just accept it uncritically. And if it's something that goes against your own narrative, you pick the most ridiculous, possibly even lying reasons to uh, throw it out. So this, this selective acceptance and, and rejection of evidence is so corrosive to any meaning making. And it has taken over our institutions, our political parties, our universities, our NGOs, our charities, all of these things. And, you know, one thing I will say about all the women and, and some of the, there's some men in this fight is we've noticed first, I think everybody is starting to notice now. And those who haven't noticed now are going to notice soon. We noticed before other people that there was a huge problem here. And so we're better prepared than they are. They're still living in normie world where they haven't noticed that all the rules have been thrown out. 
that lies are told by people you would never think would tell lies. Lies are allowed into. I know Anna, I know Jesse supports paediatric transition. I'm just talking about this one particular article, which is excellent. I don't support paediatric transition and I've told Jesse this. Anyway, um, yeah, we, we, we're ahead in understanding that our institutions are dissolving around us. And that means that we're the people who will start to rebuild institutions first, which I think is what Sex Matters is about, actually. Yes, I think, I think that's right. And um, I th um, I've kind of lost what I was going to ask you, because um, there were about three different things in that. <laughs> um, I thought one of the things that made me sort of punch the air as I, as I was reading the book was that um, Charles Darwin came up on page 12, which I thought was the right place for him. And, you know, he was the only philosopher that was um, that I cited in my uh, witness statement about my philosophical belief um, and I think you know the right place to understand this the right place to understand men and women is evolutionary bi biology which is is really clear but I think also the right way to understand institutions is really is evolutionary biology and the stuff that you're describing about people lying people um, putting their tribe above truth um, people you know this you talk about crony beliefs and, and merit beliefs but you know we're evolved for that that's that's what we're good at that's also part of the sort of maybe not the dark side but the truth of, of human nature we are socialized we're, we're highly flexible socialized um animals. monkeys yeah and so we learn things from each other and you know it, you know you have a PhD in maths and you know the reason why maths is so hard is because it's so not it, it it's just we're not evolved we, you know we're evolved to think about fairness has he got more than me you know we we think about maths on that level but when it becomes um you know pure logic we're not we're not good at that what we're good at good at is thinking about what does our tribe say yes. what so so you know we sort of we shouldn't be surprised that men are male and women are female, but we also shouldn't be surprised that human beings are, you know, nepotistic, cronyist, um, lazy, um, you know, uh, interested in getting their end away and, and looking after their own. And then and now and we've built these institutions to try and kind of curb those um, instincts and also to kind of channel those, you know, channel that the um, drive for um for um status into a drive for uh social good for you know for for knowledge for science for um institutions that can can deliver stuff and that you know this it's not it's not a complete aberration that human beings human beings are acting in this way and sort of going back to the thing about economists i, I mean i i'm struck by how few um you know not just people who read The Economist who are interested in finance and politics, but also people who are interested in economics haven't, it's one of the groups that haven't engaged with this at all. And, and ideas about like preference falsification and, um, uh, uh, you know, ignorance and all of that kind of thing seems like the way that we, we need to understand this. You know, we need biologists, but not necessarily biologists who understand about cells and, you know, the, what makes muscles it's biologists and economists who think about what makes human beings work in institutions and they seem to be the least interested in this um, from what I've seen of particularly kind of academic um, economists you know the philosophers have got into it um, and uh, largely made a total hames of it yes and I think we need kind of different tools for thinking about this And she's gone quiet again. I don't know if she can hear me. I'll just keep chatting on. Um, Helen. So, okay. No. I like that. You are I'm back. back. I'm sorry. I could hear you all through all of that. Oh, I'm well, so I'll, sorry, everybody. I'll just start I'll keep asking questions so one yeah. of the questions um is about this the institutional capture yes is terrifying you know many in the public sector are terrified to speak out I, I talk to civil servants all the time um what can we do I mean 
I, I sort of want to say something about the economists first, because I think it's the same problem for economists, scientists in general, academics in general, which is that each of them has choices about where they specialize. Like you go into a career, you get a job in a university or in a think tank or something like that. And there's a range of things that you could do. And you make your choices, you know, you know, relatively trivial or or deep ways, you know, depending on who could be your supervisor or where you're offered a job or who you like working with or that sort of thing. And in in all of these, every single one of these decisions across every field, there's this this issue is toxic. You're going to get called something awful. Yeah. So each individual is making what are not just rational choices, but actually perfectly defensible choices. Like the other things, they're interested in those too. But the aggregate result is that there's this whole big lacuna in what's being looked at. And we've seen this before, which I hadn't realized until relatively recently. And that was in looking at things like sex differences, looking at whether men and women are different in evolved ways that matter for our happiness and our choices. It's a bit obvious when you think about it, but we've lied about that to ourselves for some decades now. And again, you know, lots of people thought to themselves, this is really interesting. I'd like to look at sex differences. But you know what? I'd also quite like to look, you know, at the development of 11 to 15 year olds in some different way. And that one won't get me attacked and I might get a job. So I'll do that one. So we'd left this big black hole and we're doing it again. And then to ask the what can we do thing, it does follow on from that, but it has wider implications I've become convinced that the main thing that each of us can do is to try to do exactly what we would have done if there hadn't been this lacuna or this thing pushing or this thing sucking away at our time or whatever. To say the same as we would have said and to say it in the same way. Now you have to give more care because you don't want to give weapons to your enemy. I just mean that if you, if you want to say, um, you know, I think it's important that we don't put males into women's prisons, then just say that. And don't say it in a more angry way or don't say it in a more cautious way. Don't apologize for it, but don't shout about it. And just try not to flinch because that's the thing that is the best counter to this sort of collective decision that there's this big, I keep wanting to say elephant in the room, but it's not that. It's like a sort of a blind spot that all of us are collectively not looking at the same thing for fear of what's there. And um, just to try to look at everything and, and that's kind of quite quickly might erode its power or at least model a path to act and think and speak in this environment where there's something that's trying to pull us off our course the whole time. It's a bit of, a, bit of a metaphysical yeah, way to put so it. I think that makes sense. I think there's a, um, a slightly weak, well, there's a, a lot weaker version of that, which sounds quite similar, which is do what you would have been doing anyway about the thing that you think is important. And I was looking today at this report that Fawcett Society um, Maternity Alliance of five or six, um, you know, uh, women's organisations, established women's organisations, had put this report out about the effect of the pandemic and the economic fallout from it on, on women and what should be done about care. And, um, and the whole report was written in reality land, it was about women, girls, mothers, male violence, men, children, care. It was as if, as if none of this had happened. Yes. And on, one, on one hand, I thought, great, they're not saying, you know, gender minorities. They're not trying to say, they're not saying birthing people. They're not saying any of that. But they've, they've made a decision to say, the stuff that we're doing is important. And so we're not going to get sucked into that at all. And we're going to carry on talking about women and girls in, in reality land. And, and I think, you know, CGD, my employer, does does something similar. If you look at most of their work, it, it is recognises that men are men and women are women. And, and I think a lot of people look at people like us who've who've kind of run into this burning building and said, why did you know, why did you do that when there is so much more important stuff and you can still survive in some institutions saying sex-based things as long as you like you say you don't look at it which is and I think that that's a kind of nuance away from what from what you're saying and part of what we have to do is is persuading people that this is important so a lot of times I think you have this discussion with people and they say well you know it's such a small minority it's not really important you know who cares about women's sport anyway why are you so worried about prisons you know it's it's 
Um, you know, so they're not disagreeing on any of the um, substantive aspects of it. They're just saying, it's more than my job's worth to talk about it. Please don't, please don't make me talk about it. And they are using an evolved human capacity, which is to hold incompatible beliefs at the same time. I remember years ago reading a really interesting article about religious beliefs in tribal groups. And, you know, in comes some, uh, you know, I forget the word for it now. And um, when you study, when you study other cultures, the word has just gone from my head. Anthropologist. Yes, thank you. So in comes some anthropologist. People on this conversation. So <laughs> yes. Remember <laughs> Yeah, especially when one of them is menopausal, namely me, where the, all the words go. It's one of the joys of menopause, one of those sex-based pleasures that women get, you know, by not identifying into it, but by actually experiencing it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so anthropologists come in and they say, you know, tell me about your God. And people are just like, why are you asking me to tell you about my God? You know, we actually have a, a shaman or a wise man. He knows that stuff. I, I leave the believing to him effectively. Yeah. Yes. And they say, where is your God? Is he in the sky or where does he live? Or there are many. And they're like, no, I just believe in this kind of not very focused way. I just believe what I'm told to believe sort of thing. So I think we're actually evolved for that. So these these special beliefs that we have, and this is absolutely not the only one, it's just the oddest one, is um, Oh, and she's gone again, but we hope she'll come back. So we'll just bear with her until she does. But do keep putting questions in the Q&A because I will ask them. I think it's the gender gods. Can you hear me again? I can hear you again. Yeah, um, I could hear you as usual all the time, but sure. there you go. Um, it's called nominative aphasia, by the way. Like, it took me ages to learn that way. Nominative aphasia is when you forget the words for nouns. And, uh, you know, I've had a bit of it all my life, but my God, is it strong in your early 50s. That phrase. It took me ages to remember it. I had to write it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, this is... This is one of the things that's rather difficult about all of this is that it's very important for our belonging. You know, if you say this, you step outside your tribe and then you're surprised that your tribe thought this was important, but they do. Yeah. Um, so you have to try to find a way. I mean, the people say these things like build a golden bridge to bring people across from where they are to where you want them to be. That's probably a good idea if it's an opponent where these are on substantive issues where you have different interests and you want them to climb down from their position and join you where you are. I'm not sure it helps massively when you're trying to think about how all the other people who agree with you on things like which political party matters or, you know, how you should think about women's reproductive rights or something like that. Um, I think there you have to find a way to to engage their tribal thinking. Like, what is it? What is the sort of person they believe themselves to be? Yes. And, you know, is this somebody who cares deeply about injustice in all its forms? Or, you know, and also a very important sort of person, is this somebody who, who thinks very strongly and deeply about our uh, tried and tested institutions and like marriage, like family, you know, and the importance of these things for human flourishing? Um, they're two very important sorts of people, often not exactly the same people, but uh, those are two ways of thinking about the world that have a great deal to offer. And in each of them, you know, being careless about children or telling lies about, children, about women's needs, these things are not good. So I think that's maybe a helpful way to think, you know, what, what, is the, what are these persons' values? Where do I share their values? How can I explain to them how this thing deeply offends against these values? I once had to write a piece about um, female genital mutilation and there was a campaigner who was saying to me that, you know, there's no point in going in and talking about women's rights to people who just don't know what you mean by that. But you can sometimes engage people who have strong sense of the purity and innocence and beauty of children who are created by God and make them see the issue differently by saying to them, you know, God made your daughter perfect. You know, God didn't give your daughter something that needs to be cut out of her. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's just not the way I think about the world, but it doesn't strike me as a bad way to think about the world. It's actually a beautiful way to think about the world. And it was a way in which she had managed to persuade some men not to mutilate their daughters. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm, and I always have to say this. I know in this group I shouldn't have to, but I'm just going to anyway. I don't think 
that this is the same sort of issue. I'm not saying female genital mutilation is the same as being trans, please. I'm just trying to say, you know, you can think about issues in several ways and find a way that resonates with a particular person for their values. Yes, yes. And um, I mean, but I think, you know, the weirdest thing about this topic is you're trying to convince people of something that they all believed until five minutes ago. And really, you know, if you can get them to think about it, they still believe, you know, and as you say in the book, when it comes down to who will you have sex with, people know what their sexual orientation is. And, and although, you know, some young people have been persuaded to say, you know, they're pansexual, they don't see sex, it's all about gender. You know, most people who will, who will say trans women are women on some level, you know, it's sort of not, not in the bedroom. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so you're sort of, we're having these crazy involved conversations about something that is really incredibly simple and which really most people um, believe in. Um, but I, but I, I think, again, I don't think that's that uh, unprecedented. You know, people, anyone who has a religious belief of any sort believes unfalsifiable and often very poetic sort of things. Like if you believe, you know, in the Trinity, I was taught as a child that um, God was both three and one in a way that nothing else could be both three and one. And the shamrock was the national symbol of Ireland because the three leaves in the one uh, plant was a symbol of God's three, you know, the Trinity and the unity. And I can see, I mean, I, 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 you know, as a mathematician, that makes just no sense, three can't be one. But that doesn't mean that you can't pray or write poetry or sing or meditate on the basis of that. It just means you probably shouldn't put in law that three is the same as one. Yes. Because if you put in law that three is the same as one, then six is the same as two. Because you multiply both sides by two or you can add one to both sides and get the, you know, three equals one, four equals two, five equals three, etc. You can get any number equals any number. So if people want to believe in a sort of a poetic way that there's some sort of essence of femininity, I, I'm, I'm bowing out, thanks. I'm not interested in that belief. But if someone else wants to have it and if they find that's very meaningful, that meaningful for them, and I have, I have talked to trans women who've said this, that they feel that this is a way that they can live a life that they that they feel every day they're, it's almost consecrating themselves to some idea of themselves. Who am I to say don't do that? That's fine. Just don't write in law that male equals female. I mean, there are domains where consistency matters. And, you know, we had the government just last week defending um, the uh, Christy Alan Kane, the non-binary um, woman, who's you know now identifies as non-binary um and wants an x on her passport and the government said the principle that they were defending was administrative coherence which you know they've long they've they've long given away but actually that's right you know yes a word needs to mean the same thing in a law in all places otherwise you know kind of chaos and you get zero equals one as you yeah. and i have said to each other many times yeah. you know and if you look at elan kane you can see elan kane is living in a way that is very meaningful to Elan Kane. I, I wouldn't dream of trying to summarize that way, but you know, the appearance, the person who is with Elan Kane in every picture, there's something going on there that obviously is meaningful to this person that I have no issue with and no desire to interfere with and don't find terribly interesting, but that's true for many things, you know, in life, I don't think Elan Kane would find me very interesting either, and that's fine. It's the issue of taking it out of that domain of personal meaning making and turning it into something that's written down and pinned on paper. And, and it makes everything else that everyone else deals with in, inconsistent. Yes. Uh, so um, I wanted to ask you, so a question that's come up is, has anyone, has anyone surprised you coming out in support of the book? Um, and in a sort of way, everybody has, <laughs> because nobody has to, you know? Um, I've been very surprised by who has endorsed and who has not endorsed. And of course, I would never, you know, people I've approached who haven't endorsed, I would never say something about that. But one, you know, one delightful person did then say publicly that she hadn't. So I'm not, uh, I'm not being mean. I, I approached Nimco Ali quite early, asking her if she would endorse that book. She's somebody I admire and she's written a book about specifically, you know, it's quite, I, I can't remember the exact title of it, it's what we're, what we're not meant to talk about. 
And I just thought that's somebody who gets it. And then she just didn't really reply to my emails. And I just thought she's too busy. And I just let it go. And then very recently, she said, I'm so sorry. Like she said this publicly on Twitter. She said, I'm so sorry I didn't endorse it. I was too scared. I'm sorry I was a coward. I will give you a quote for the paperback. And I was very touched by that. It, it, because, you know, there's, if, there's, if there's a level of bravery beyond just being brave, it's admitting that you were scared and you're going to do it anyway. Yes. I think there's admitting you were scared and there's admitting you were wrong. I think there are people who have put, um, you know, pen to paper and, and got this. I mean, I think, you know, we all change in how we articulated things, but people who have completely um, yeah, got the wrong end of the stick. Yeah, I think that, you know, changing your mind in public is is a very brave thing to do. And, and I loved, absolutely yeah. loved. I loved David Aronovich's review. And I know some people were sort of cross with him for saying that I was too angry. But you know, there's, there's a dirty little secret in journalism. If you do a review, you have to criticise something. You can't just say it's all great. So there's an element of that. I mean, maybe he did think I was too angry, but actually he undercut that criticism straight away. Like the next sentence he said, but perhaps she wouldn't have been able to write it without that anger and frankly, that bravery. So, you know, he was just trying to find a way to say the people it matters to persuade are not the ones who will be persuaded by shouting. And that's so, so, so true. There's just no point in us saying to people who don't agree with us. I, I mean, the analogy I always use because everything's easier to see when it's not your issue or it's not your group. So it's Northern Ireland, I say, you know, I mean, you really can argue in a principled way that most of the people who live in Northern Ireland are you know, descended from people who've been there for several hundred years. Yes, okay, they settled their ancestors at some point, but that's true of everybody. You know, they want to stay part of the United Kingdom, or you can say it's an island. It was colonized and it was um, partitioned by the colonizer. You know, both of those are good arguments and they're both positions and there's just no point to hang on to them because both of you can just keep shouting that at each other forever and getting nowhere. So that's that's my analogy. I know what I think. I, I know I don't think that people can change sex, but I also know that some other people think you can or think that gender is more important. I've no massive interest in persuading them that they're wrong. What matters to me is the public policy. So that's the same as with different beliefs or different religions. We have to coexist. And just as Jewish people or Catholic people can't impose their beliefs on everyone, and I can't impose my atheist beliefs on everyone, we have to find a public space that works for everybody. And that's the space I want to talk in. I'm not, I, I don't want to try to persuade other people to think the same as me. I yeah. want to understand my concerns and I want to understand their concerns. And I, I mean, when we, you know, we were thinking about what to call this organisation and, and, you know, we decided to call it Sex Matters. And, and partly that means we are representing the people who think that sex matters and who want to put that point across. But we're also trying to solve it by identifying the places where sex matters. And in the places where sex doesn't matter, the fact that somebody has a different belief about um, the importance of sex versus gender identity doesn't matter um, and if we can define those spaces both in terms of data fields of data and in terms of physical spaces and rules where sex matters then um, you know we're not saying everyone has to have the same belief but we're saying that these are domains where when you say man or woman when you say male or female this is what it means and if that makes some people feel uncomfortable then you know there may be situations where there are alternative spaces where you can still be part of public life without um, being part of those spaces. And then there are other situations, you know, prisons and sport are, you know, the two kind of canonical ones where, you know, you can't get away from, from sex, you know, you, you can stay. But even there, you know, even there, if you think, um, if you think creatively, there are things you can do sometimes. I mean, it is just not possible that men and women can compete on, on a level playing field on sport. But if you have groups for whom it's a core value to ignore the difference between male and female, then you're just going to have to have mixed sex teams, like the way that some sports are, that, you know, you have to have the same number of men and women on each team. And, and then you play in that, like you do, you know, tug of war with, with each team with the same number of men and women, or you play in a beach volleyball with mixed sex teams or whatever, you know, as long as it's safe. And then, and that's a way of thinking about what's the end result you want. Like the end result you want is 
that really the most people possible can in a fair and just and equitable way to express all their values and, and play all their part in public life. So sex does matter. And even people who wish that sex doesn't matter or wish to write sex out of their lives can be helped to do that if you remember when sex matters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so Liam um, has a long question, um, which I'll read out part of it anyway. Um, he says, we're fast approaching a point where these issues will no longer be publicly ignored. At this point, my guess is that a final accusation will be levelled against us. It isn't what you said. It was who said it and how you said it. Yes. Um, if it comes to this, how do you think that should be handled? That's definitely going to happen. And I have always said that the way this ends is when a large number of men stand up and said, all right, enough of this. The women have been left to talk this nonsense in their shrieky little high voices that I can't hear uh, in their annoying, angry way uh, with their illogical little lady brains for long enough. It's time for the men to come and sort this out. Of course, no, we are not going to sterilise children and we have to stop this nonsense about letting males into female sports. And only the feminists have done it better. And that's going to be intensely annoying. But again, you know, I'm, I'm not in this. This is the most ridiculous sentence. And I'm not in this for any sort of glory. And I never was. And now that the book no. is selling well, you know, maybe it looks like, oh, you know, I've seen people say, well, she's a millionaire. You know, she's she's written this book to make a fortune out of it. I lost money on this book and I will lose money on this book unless it does like far better than is ever plausible because I took unpaid leave to write it. Uh, so it's just all stupid. I did this because I thought it mattered. And I did it because there's an end goal, which is that they stop sterilizing children. That is the end goal for me personally. And the fewer children are sterilized before they stop sterilizing them, the better. And I think I can do something to stop them sterilizing children. And uh, yeah, um, that is my personal goal. Other people have different ones. I think your one is probably to stop them sacking women who say quite ordinary things in the workplace. Um, and I think and those two are linked. I think, you know, the, the kind of freedom of speech stuff is, you know, it, comes down hardest I you know this topic is like a game of um what's it called hotter and colder you know when you're looking for somebody and you know the hotter it gets the closer you are to the thing and the thing that women lose their jobs over or the things that you that you get the harshest criticism for is talking about um the harm to children and talking about the harm to safeguarding and so you know they're they're, they're shouting hotter over here look over here while shouting you know don't look there it's it's a, it's a strange thing and I think you know in in some ways my case was kind of an aberration because I didn't I, I hadn't gone that close to those things but because I was working for an employer that didn't think I had any employment rights they just thought Let, let's get rid of her whereas I think a lot of people in a different kind of employment situation might have weathered my storm if they'd agreed to to shut up um but if you get close enough to talking about um the impact on children it you know that's where the the sort of hardest pushback comes so i think you know those things are yes absolutely i agree and, and so to sort of finish that one i think it'll get to the point that men come in and they say something and it ends and they will say you know, the women didn't do it right or the wrong people spoke about it or they spoke about the right thing, but in the wrong way. And if they've stopped sterilizing children, OK. OK, it's not fair, but it's never been fair. What's happening now isn't fair either. And, you know, I'm not this saintly, actually. This is a decision I've made and then I moan about it separately, <laughs> including to my long suffering family. But I just don't think there's any point in being unstrategic. And I think there are too many people who are unstrategic in this. I think it's a shame. And so that would be one thing that I would say about uh, what we can do is to try to just try to be a bit more strategic. Yeah. I don't think, for example, that it's very wise to be criticizing people that you mostly agree with publicly. I just don't see the point. There's you know there's so much out there that's wrong and there's so many targets you know pick your targets wisely don't waste your time getting into pointless fights and, and then you know this thing of just shouting at people you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong trans women are men i mean yes that's what i think but it's not what this other person thinks what's what's useful about that or arguing with twitter trolls or things like that you know just eyes on the prize and each person will define that prize somewhat differently 
and just work your way towards that. Yes, I, I, I think that's, I, I think that's right. And, you know, as you said, the, the kind of smears are taking energy, but also this, this unstrategic stuff is taking energy. Big um, time. You know, and, and, and it, I think it's partly, I mean, the extent to which there's purpose to all of this or whether it's just meme warfare and, and this meme is winning by, you know, all of the most nefarious means without anybody sort of necessarily pulling, pulling the levers, but, you know, yeah, the kind of arguing with trolls on, on the internet is, um, is a time waster for everybody. I, I see, I see that somebody has said that I let every little thing on the internet get to me and, you know, you recognize that now, so don't do it. It's a wonderful thought to say to yourself, you know, I don't have to listen. I mean, I really hope everyone here who's on Twitter uh, switches off notifications from people who aren't mutual follows. It improves your Twitter experience a thousand percent. Just don't see them. That helps a lot. And I also see, I mean, you know, I've been through several cycles of this, of people attacking me, people lying about me and um, putting a certain amount of... um, uh, effort into trying to um, combat that and then seeing other people do it and thinking yeah it's kind of pointless um, yes you know and and it's easier to see when you see other people doing it than than when you're doing it yourself when you see other people um, trying to take apart bad faith arguments when you know the truth is they're just bad faith arguments and we should try and find the people who at least have um a willingness and an openness to engage in good faith arguments, which is, I think, what your book, what your book does. Um, and, and, and if you're going to argue just for people to watch, I see people saying that sometimes, and it's true. I mean, there's research showing this, that people change their minds after watching other people debate. And you watch that the arguments rehearsed several times. And at the end of that, it's both legitimized for you, but actually you now understand it and you've maybe changed your mind. Well, bloody hell, don't do it with somebody with 45 followers then. <laughs> you know? Yes. If you manage to engage Philip Pullman, I have to say, I don't think on this issue he's particularly in good faith, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he just doesn't get it. But he's influential. He, he's influential and he's there and quite a lot of people are following. So even if he doesn't get it and keeps saying these same silly things that he says, other people see that that's silly. Don't do that with, you know, some troll in America who's just trying to wind you up and thinks it's funny. I wanted to ask you, Maya. Yes. What's, ne- what's next for Sex Matters? What's your strategic vision? Um, so Sex Matters is doing um five things one of them is building an organization we you know we've got to this point by kind of sheer force of will and grassroots organizing which has been incredible um but which has a kind of a shelf life and a limitation i think we're all operating like like um isis cells and it's very difficult to to organize and i think so we need to get to a point where we are an organization that can you know answer the phone that can be on the media that can be talking to politicians that can be on top of all of this um as a movement we need that and sex matters wants to underpin that by being you know single issue lowest kind of lowest common denominator we just want to talk clearly about this and and clarify in the law um without having any other um uh you know feminism or or political things on top of it um, and then there are kind of five things that we need to do to get there um, one of them is this hearts and minds conversations enabling people to be braver um, and doing that on an individual level in workplaces with politicians you know in communities and and you know I think as, as hopefully we get out of our houses more um, that's that may become more possible um so there's so there's that and sort of doing that through building our support base and giving people tools to do that um secondly is writing guidance sort of doing the ehrc's job for them until they do it themselves um in terms of showing what the law says how people can use it how it can protect everyone's rights you know because i think you you know you have piece in your book about why the UK is different or and part of that is we you know we do have a fairly 
decent set of laws that if we used them um, and understood them, we'd be in a lot better place. And so we, you know, sort of helping people to do that. We've we've done schools guidance. We're going to do guidance for single sex services, um, guidance for people in employment, and uh, you know, just so that people can understand and and use the Equality Act. Um, but and also pushing employers to use the code of practice. So although there are problems with the code of practice that, that on the Equality Act, it's a lot better than the bad guidance that's out there, which is which is pretty much what the EHRC said when they were, when it was challenged. Um, and so, you know, organisations have bought the idea that um, taking stonewall advice is like buying from IBM. You know, no one no one lost their job from buying from IBM, and I think we need to convince them that actually this is a really risky proposition. It's not aligned with the code of practice. It's not aligned with law. You should be you should be doing what the law says. So that, so there's that. Um, then there's fighting um, kind of legislative whack-a-mole. So what we're seeing is that um, after having lost the battle on self-ID, what's happening is that gender is in place of sex is being put into every piece of legislation, every piece of statutory guidance, either gender in place of sex or women is being taken out, mother is being taken out, um, self-ID, sort of by the back door is being put into into every piece of legislation and that um so bringing that to light is an opportunity to get people to kind of talk about what's at stake like we saw that with the with the moma bill on maternity leave but also if we don't pay attention to those things we're going to wake up and find that you know it's a done deal yes so so there's that um and then um i think we do need to be proposing solutions, how you solve this for everyone. And, you know, I think you can go a long way with the Equality Act. You can go a long way with kind of sorting out bad guidance that's there and just bring in line with the Equality Act. But I think um, that we do need to, we do need to have a solution of how you um, deal with data, places, people and different beliefs, which I think the GRA was a very analog version of that. It was trying to solve this problem that somebody had a birth certificate that showed their sex on it. And when they wanted to prove their name and their age, they also had to show their sex. I mean, the fact that if you see someone in real life, you can tell their sex anyway, you know, it makes it sort of a limited um, right that someone should not be able to show their sex. But nevertheless, it's a, you know, it's an analog problem. And now we have, digital solutions you ought to be able to prove your name your age you are who you say you are you have right to your bank your bank account without someone necessarily knowing your sex or acknowledging your sex because that's a situation where sex doesn't matter so um articulating kind of a next generation way of thinking about this and trying to move people into that is is kind of where we want to get to but there's a whole lot of hand-to-hand um, -hand fighting in terms of um, unpicking institutional capture, shining light on institutional capture, particularly um, Stonewall and others, and then uh, giving people the guidance that they can use. So those are kind of, those, I think I did five there. You did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what, that's what Sex Matters is, is going to do. And we're, and we're sort of a mix of um, big picture strategic and let's do something opportunistic. Um, and on that, on that note, we thought um, your book is such an opportunity to get these arguments in front of politicians. Um, and so we've launched tonight, I don't know if you've seen it, um, a campaign to uh, get people to sponsor a copy of Helen's book, Helen's book, um, and get it to their MP, to their member of the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, or the Northern Irish Assembly, or to anyone else they can think of who's influential, and particularly if you know people. Um, or you went to school with them, you were once in a choir with them, or you played sport against them. If you have any way in with people who are influential, or you simply want to send a copy to your child's head teacher, you want to send a copy to somebody without necessarily um, saying who you are, um, we will be the conduits for that. So we've launched it on Twitter and I'll send it round to, we'll send it round to everybody on the mailing list. Um, we really want to use this as kind of, the secret weapon and get it into everybody's hands and have them spend the summer reading it.
let me brilliant. And again, I would hope that people will be strategic. Um, you know, I don't think there's any point in, you know, 20 people saying they want to send one to David Paisley or somebody, you know, I mean, if I were him, I would regard that as harassment. Well, so you know, one thing in terms of both efficiency and strategicness is um, people will only get one copy. So, right. so one, we're going to make sure that MPs don't get 20 copies just because, you know, trees and it's yeah. wasteful. Um, but also anybody will only get one copy. Um, so if we have multiple messages, we'll send all the messages in one copy. And if we have multiple people nominating the same person, we'll say, can we use the money to send it to someone else? So, you know, we right. want to get the maximum um, sort of eyes looking at the book rather than um, symbolic piles of books ending up with people who don't need them. Yeah, and you know, again, thinking, I, I, know that, I know that people often say to me, but who are these random people that don't even exist you can have good faith arguments with? And I know it does feel like that. And it feels like that on Twitter in particular, because on Twitter, everybody is speaking to their own tribe. And it's a rare place where you can see the people who aren't in your tribe. And you can have a good shouting match with them and neither of you has been persuaded of anything and off you go. But, you know, there are, most people aren't decided on this. I mean, I, I was interviewed today for, um, for a podcast in Ireland and it was the first semi-hostile interview that I had. And he, he was perfectly nice, but he was like, you know, I have trans friends. Are you going to look them in the eye and tell them that they're not who they say they are? Again and again and again, you know, and, but he wasn't in bad faith. Like I got him to the point that he said, we do have to be able to talk about this. And I got him to acknowledge that he didn't know that there was gender self-ID in Ireland and that he didn't know that there were right now male rapists in women's prisons. And, you know, he, he, I, I got him to acknowledge that there was an analogy with religion. He actually said to ex-Catholic Ireland, uh, but that's not something that's fundamental to people's sense of their selves. And I was like, hang on a minute. Are you seriously telling me that someone's religion isn't fundamental? You know, it actually was a pointful argument. So there are pointful arguments to be had. The reason it feels like there isn't is because we've had this no debate thing going for so long. Yeah. But I've been frightened away from it for so, so hard. But now we're breaking through that. And I think we will see over the next year or two that it is possible actually to have arguments or discussions in a normal way, like you might about politics. Yes. And I, and I think, you know, people say Twitter is toxic and it, and it is. Um, but, you know, the discussion took place on Twitter because it wasn't allowed to take place almost anywhere else apart from right. apart from Mumsnet. Um, and like you say, I think we've reached the point now where um, institutions can no longer say, you know, we're not going to talk about this and we, we're going to have to be able to have those kind of more grown up conversations. And then about how do you have these conversations and there are people who have a great deal of knowledge and expertise and how do you facilitate difficult conversations there's a whole field of negotiation theory there's people who talk to hostage takers there's people who you know negotiate with FARC in Colombia or you know the IRA in Northern Ireland people know how to do these things and I don't know everything by any means about it but I do know that you don't just keep stating your position that you try to be open in your, your conversation in the way that you state things, that you ask the other person to say what they think and listen incredibly carefully and try to register it as many times as you can. I would genuinely love to hear from Elan Kane how the world looks. I'd just be really interested the same way as I would be, you know, if somebody who's an Orthodox Jew or, you know, a religion I know very little about wants to tell me how the world looks. And I think that at the, you know, after listening really, really, really carefully to why some people don't want say you know you know these women who always pop up and say sanctimoniously you know i don't mind beautiful trans women in my spaces and straight away other people say as i have said many times well it's not yours to give away i do care that's not changing her mind i genuinely want to know why does she not mind yes you know because maybe she's just saying but maybe not like maybe there are people who feel differently about bodily privacy to the way i do and if somebody's able to say to me I just don't know why anyone minds being naked in front of other human beings. I really don't. And I could say, oh, that's really interesting. I don't feel like that at all. I really, really mind. It's a huge difference for me if I'm naked, if there are male people around me. You know, then there's a start of the hope of some conversation there. I'm not saying every time. I know you look sceptical, Maya, but sometimes. Yes, I, I don't know. I just, I find that one, I, I tend to think that one is in bad faith. I, you know, I think. But best to get them to expose that then. Yes. Yeah. You just say, you know, no, you're wrong. You know, I don't agree with you. That's not how I feel. We're not letting them expose it. If somebody's in bad faith, you can get them to demonstrate that usually. Yeah. 
No, and I, and I think you're absolutely right about kind of getting the people who are good at negotiating into this, you know, and not just kind of legal negotiating, but, you know, facilitating complex conversations. And, and you sometimes see those people come into this and they come into it at a very superficial level and you have to help them to drill down several levels before they um, kind of grasp what they're seeing. And at that point they may have run away. And like you said, sort of to said, there, there are 10 other things that I could be doing yes. that are less dangerous. Less um, dangerous less stupid. I don't think we can underestimate the extent to which the absolute blind stupidity of this particular argument has put a lot of people off. I mean, you asked at the beginning, you know, why were economists, and I would add a lot of scientists and so on, not engaged in this. I mean, if you're a biologist, it's so inconceivable that people are seriously saying that biological sex is a spectrum, that, you know, it just falls into the category of things that you wouldn't waste your time with. And, it, and then, you know, in the years that people have thought to themselves, this is mad, it'll sort itself out while I'm not looking. And by the way, if you pop your head over the parapet, it gets shot off. Uh, you know, those that they, they've left the space to the people who, yes, are mad, but they managed to get it because, you know, institutions aren't doing their work, their work properly. And now we have a much harder job than if we had just straight away, straightforwardly said, don't be ridiculous. Yes. You know, and so I think, you know, there are, like you say in the book, there are, you know, there are a lot of people in the middle who won't, shouldn't take much to get them to, to shift if it becomes safer. And that, you know, what Sex Matters wants to do is to kind of shift those people and to make the environment safer. Um, so I, I think we've, we've kind of caught up on the, on the five minutes where you were frozen. So I think we've come to our, come to our full hour. Um, oh, I'm sorry it was that long, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. Um, I'm really uh, thank everyone who's, who turned up. There's 77 people, uh, participants online, which is, which is amazing. Um, tell your friends about Sex Matters. Look out for your bag or your mug when they come um, and, you know, drink tea out of them on Zooms and start conversations. Go to the shops with your bag. Um, just try and wherever you can uh, turn these conversations around. And yes, if people want to support Helen's book to go to our MPs and our, our representatives and other influential people, please help us do that. Thank you so much for inviting me, Maya. I'm really proud to have been your guest for the very first ever Sex Matters Roundtable. I, this organisation is not one I'm a member of as such, but it's one that's very close to my heart. And, you know, as I said to you last night, by losing your job, you did a great service to women everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I think I said yesterday at the book launch, I said that Maya, the second most important thing that Maya will ever have done with her life is to lose her job. And the most important one is not to have taken it lying down. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us, Helen, and congratulations on the book. It's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Good night. Good night.